Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kauten Schabes at the Skizar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut loose Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Rudy Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites, and this uh, special episode is together with my dear friend and colleague, Davi Safir, who's with me together. We're going to have a conversation about the um, Cantonists and the Tsarist uh, military Jews in the 19th century, Russian Jews in the Tsarist military. And before we get to today's topic, I'd like to uh, recap the trip I was privileged to have with Davi Safir and um, and his shul just last week. Um, and first of all, it's great to have you here, Davi. And you know, what are your thoughts about our trip together? Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for joining us on a uh, another wonderful trip. Really, really uh, enjoyed. Uh, I think the last time we did one of these trips uh, for a shul was was to Poland, and now this time we called it Ashkenaz. We went to, you know, it was Ashkenaz, um, Germany and Western Poland, um, but the parts of Poland that really were once uh, the German Empire. Um, and uh, it was really, it, uh, it surpassed expectations, both in terms of, uh, you know, all the places we went to visit, emotion, uh, excitement, uh, camaraderie, and uh, as usual, you added a ton with, uh, you know, all of your knowledge. I think, is this your first time doing a trip that encompassed all these places? Yeah, definitely. I've been to most of them, um, choppy stuff here and there, but I've never done this route at all. And some of the places were entirely new. So it was really great that, we, you know, you're, you and the group chose this. So it was exciting to be some of these new places. And you know, you know, we started off the trip in Frankfurt, and we went to Mainz and and um, and uh, Verms, where Rashi's Shul, the Marami Rutenberg, and a lot of other Rabbeinu Gershim and Mainz. That place I've been to with quite a few groups before, so that was. But it was. You know, it's always great to go back. 
But then later on, we were in Hamburg in Berlin, which was completely new for me, and really full of Jewish history and Kivrei Tzadikim, and uh, it was it was wild. It was a it was a real um, Bergen Belsen. Uh, we went to the concentration camp. I've been to many concentration camps, but I have never been to Bergen Belsen before. So a lot of the, I would say most of the trip was new, new for me. And the, in other words, the history wasn't, but the the journey itself, and it was it was really really interesting. I think we need to have more groups go to these places. I think they're underrated. Uh, just a place like Hamburg, for example, um, it's 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 central to the Jewish map of history. We went to Rabbeinus and Eibeshitz's cover, and Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who his great uh, adverse adversary adversary how do you pronounce that adversary adversary <laughs> and he's buried two kvarim next to him Rafal Hamburger Rafal Hakayan Hamburger is buried there Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger the Aruch Lener Rabbi Mendel Frankfurter all in one little base kvaris it's like centuries of Jewish history right there the great shul of Hamburg where we went to the memorial where it's soon going to be rebuilt um, and there were base of Karlbach, who was the famous chief rabbi of Hamburg, who was killed by the Nazis, was the rabbi in the shul there. It's just, you know, just one of the places we went to and how much, how few groups go there and how much of Jewish history there is to see there. Yeah, I mean, let's be totally honest. I mean, imagine you just turn on this podcast. You're not like a, a history nerd like us, right? I don't know, my mistake. And you stumbled upon these two guys talking about this amazing trip where they went to a bunch of cemeteries, concentration camps, and memorials. So, you know, <laughs> just, just think about it, uh, you know, as a, as a normal person. But then again, you know, we're not so normal. Um, right. But, and the people who tend to listen to this podcast tend to enjoy these kind of things. But sometimes just I, I stop and I think, and I say, you know, maybe we shouldn't talk about this in public. You know, people might you know, think it's <laughs> a bit odd. But I guess we are talking about it in public and thousands of people are listening. But uh, yeah, it was amazing. Um, and uh, Hamburg itself, I think uh, Rabbi Bistritsky, who is the uh, Shliach there, um, and is a relative and of chief yours. rabbi, and chief rabbi, and uh, you could follow him on Twitter, by the way, if you, if you if you can read German. Um, seems like he's active there, but uh, really, uh, was is an incredible person. I was amazed to see what he has going on there. He has a kailul. He has uh, in the middle of dinner all of a sudden uh, this cousin pranced in and did this incredible rendition of the Yaki Tzadik Katamar. Tzadik Really, really was nice. And my Sounds like you could a, be a cousin too. In my dreams, yeah. My <laughs> my Rav is a, a Yaki and he especially enjoyed that. But um, he was extremely accommodating. Um, we stayed around the corner from from the Chabad house in a nice hotel there, and, and we had all of our meals and davening at the at uh, Rabbi Stritsky's, uh, uh beautiful, beautiful, it's like a restored old, uh, or, or in, in the midst of being restored, old uh, mansion that once belonged to a Jew there, um, and you, you get a just a feel for the history of walking in there, so um, it's quite amazing, and going that, that uh, midnight visit to the basic forest, I think pretty much 90% of the group was ready to bury me in that basic forest and the pouring <laughs> rain and mud. And we went, and then after that, you know, I didn't get enough. So somehow where I connected us to the now chief rabbi of Lubuk, where the uh, OG of Shlomo Kalbach is buried, the original, the patriarch of the Kalbach family. 
is buried and the his original shul, one of the few in Germany that were not burnt down on uh, uh, Kristallnacht. One, I think the only one in that part of Germany that survived Kristallnacht. Um, and uh, I think it was attached to an important factory. They didn't burn it down, but it was damaged. And the German government restored it. I think they gave him 7 million euros. And it's one of the most beautiful shuls I've ever seen. It's nicer than anything we have in America. You know, and it's up there with the nicest shuls I've seen. And it's restored in immaculate state. And there's a bit of a Kalbach museum. But this is the, you know, the original Kalbach shul, as they pit, as they like to put it. But it, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, the acoustics there, the just, it really uh, it brings you back. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that was a 2.30 a.m. visit in the rain and the mud. And it really, uh, you know, it didn't feel, it felt more Polish than German. You know, we felt like the ice student that we are. You know, on that visit, right. but um, and it just happens to be that you know the the Jews who live today in Hamburg and Lubbock are Russian Jews, so you know, you know right. We, so we, we did, at the end of the day, the end of the day, you know, they didn't like us, but we did conquer. You know, we conquered their, <laughs> uh, their communities. If you look at their their, uh, you know, it, it started. You know, we could talk a little bit about Berlin and and the rabbinical seminary and the basic chorus, which. Uh, the great Eli Slomwitz of ENS Tours managed to get us into the Adassis Roll Cemetery, which is very hard to, to get into. In Berlin. Apparently. In Berlin, yeah. The Sleeping Head to Berlin. And uh, going to the cave of Rommel Elio Kaplan. Um, and, you know, he, he, was, he, he was, you know, the one who kind of broke the barrier, right? He brought, he brought over the ideas um, of, say, Slabotka. Right, and it's one of the one of the closest the, Talmidim of the altar of Slabatka, and he 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 comes into he succeeded Rabbi Hoffman as the head of the rabbinical seminary in Berlin, the Hildesheimer Seminary. So he he's a bridge of sorts. All right, then our friend Brinson Klebanski writes. You know, it's interesting you look, how you look at it, but he says that the, the what happened was is initially. Uh, World War One was, was a bridge that two communities together. We know about the German chaplains, Rabbi Kalbach included, right? That during the during German when the Germans controlled um, uh, some of the cities in, in Lithuania and Poland, right? They came in and and they really got to know uh, to, to know the Eastern European Jews, and and they saw Taka, you know, they're not so bad. Um, and then he writes about how how, how Yeshiva Bachram, how German uh, German boys started going across to the Eastern European yeshivas, and once they saw that those yeshivas were not so different, you know, than what they had in mind, you know, the scholarship was there, quote unquote. Then then they were okay, and they realized that what they they needed, you know, I guess it was also a lack of. From her, you know, the the the, the Hersheyan uh, brand, right? Only created so many rabbis. The Rabiner seminar was it was not necessarily creating a bottom of caliber that they needed, um, and they ended up bringing over Emilio Kaplan, and then of course Rabbi of Weinberg, um, right? To to Berlin, um, and obviously Slabotka and Pell, let's say, of all the approaches, right, in in Eastern Europe were the ones that probably fit the best. Right for the German Jews, but but the irony is, um, and this is something that both of you and I have pursued, is that the kind of the supporter of the Muslim movement, right? The the most important supporter of the Muslim movement was a Hamburg-born, but uh, but definitely Berlin Jew named Avadi Lachman, the Mel Lachman, who's a kind of a mysterious character that we've been chasing 
um, chasing his, his story. Um, right. And and was definitely, I mean, he was the one who supported Sabatka and Tells and, and, and Kovnikoyal. Kovnikoyal and helped write the Svarim with Leshem and, and many other things. A fascinating person who really not much is known about him. And, you know, we, we hunted for his caver in the Adas Cemetery, which is kind of a disrepair. We did not find it, unfortunately. But we did get to go to some of the other Kroner, W.C. Hoffman. Um, uh, and, and Urban Israel Hildesheimer himself. Of course, it was Israel Hildesheimer, and and you know it was the it was really uh, for me it was surreal to, to go to some of these places, and uh, I know that uh, it, it's hard. I, I, my uh, my Polish uh, grandfather was shown for him to think that I actually went touring in Germany. You know, probably wouldn't have been very happy, but um, you know what uh, you know it brings us back to our past, and I do think trips like this, and you know, going with your rav, going with your shul. You know, Rob especially, he, he he brought a lot of lessons in that really, I feel like I came back a better person. Torah and Derek Haritz is something that definitely applies to all of us. See people who, you know, working, uh, you know, working from Jews, Torah and Derek Haritz is an extremely important concept to remind yourselves of. First, Torah is important, you know, to, right. to go back to. And uh, it was amazing. What was your personal highlight of the trip? I had a few. I mean, like you said, with Rory Rostritsky, who happens to be my cousins, the way he showed us around the town and what he's doing there, the fact that the 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 Yeshiva Day School that he has running, the Jewish school that he has running for the current contemporary Jewish community in Hamburg is in the same building that the pre-war Talmud Torah is, and the fact that our, mine and Rabbi Rostritsky's great-grandfather, who's the same person, right? He's my cousin. Our great-grandfather learned in that school, and now he's the rabbi of a community that kids are learning again in that school is wild. And that, that was one thing. But I think um, uh, when we were in Berlin, and again, like we call the trip an Ashkenaz trip, so it shouldn't be called a, a Germany trip, God forbid. But we're in Berlin, and we're doing a lot of Nazi stuff in Berlin, um, museums and memorials. And so, and and we're standing under the Brandenburg Gate um, at night, a place which was is a symbol of Germany, and and during the time of of the Nazi regime, Hitler uh, used it as a symbol of the Nazis, and there was all these swastikas and around that and Nazi marches, and we as a shul uh, stood under that Brandenburg Gate and we sang Vihisha Amda, and we took pictures and videos under the Brandenburg Gate singing Vihisha Amda. And I felt like it was like this Panavizharov under the Arch of Titus's uh, moment there, where we're back and the Nazis are gone and Hitler's gone and the swastika is banned and and it's a sign of you know evil and and here we are singing singing still. I think that was a highlight. What was yours? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to, just to, to to leave off for you that um. Uh, our uh, our friend Ellie Gunsberg, a Jewish history soundbites enthusiast, um, he remarked that uh, it's, it's pretty ironic that it's more socially acceptable to fly an Israeli flag in Berlin and most university campuses in America. It's it's uh, <laughs> quite ironic, um, but uh, and and it's you know obviously a lot of it is guilt. Some of it is that they're facing the same problems Israel is facing, and some of it is really just. The, uh, the horror that they saw from you know the the, uh, the the few Germans that were killed or kidnapped on October seventh really the uh, 
the German people, you know, you see them, they, they are standing behind Israel and, uh, people come over to you and, you know, I was wearing a cap that had, uh, Israel on it some of the time just to kind of, you know, test the waters, maybe dangerously, as some would say, but, uh, people came over me and said, you know, we, we, you know, we support Israel and, uh, you know, sometimes it's just rhetoric, but you, obviously you don't feel what you feel sometimes in, in, in other countries in Europe. Um, when you are in Germany, you do feel, you feel the ghosts, as you would say of it, but but uh, you actually do feel a bit more comfortable than you do in, in, in other countries. Um, but uh, a couple of highlights, I would say, um, something that I was not expecting to be a highlight was the memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, the uh, Holocaust Memorial uh, in uh, Berlin. You did an incredible job really explaining it. I think that uh, I posted the video on Twitter. Um, and you can see the video there of Yehuda speaking there, but it was really incredible. And something else somebody pointed out to me, which really was was powerful. And I can't say I, I didn't uh, count them, nor did I search online to see if it's uh, if it's correct. But um, the this memorial in Berlin is just slabs of concrete that you know you go you kind of go in there and it keeps getting higher and higher, and you're like falling in deeper and deeper, and nobody quite understood the design and I think originally it was supposed to be 4,000 slabs and I, you'd think German engineering architecture, you know, they would figure out exactly the number of slabs <laughs> it would be. But uh, by the time they were done, they realized that the number of slabs there is 2,711, which is the amount of Dauphin that are in Shas, which is really a, you know, it's a message really for the Jewish people um, and of the Jewish people that, uh, you know, we suffer tragedy, but at the end of the day, we have our Torah right? And we go on, right? And Tyra is as strong as ever, you know, some will say we're living in, in the golden age of, of Tyra, and definitely talking with Dafim and Dafyami, it was a very powerful uh, moment and message for me. Um, really was uh, something someone pointed out to me, but maybe it was incorrect, but it definitely, at the moment, you know, it was something that that, uh, that I felt. Um, a couple of other things, is obviously the last day of the trip, um, the dictator that I am, um, forced everyone at 4.30 in the morning to get up. And we left, you know, we, we flew out of Posen, which is now Poznan, which is Poland and Posen in German. And we stopped at three really, uh, three out of the way farm that people don't usually go to. One of them, which is the Prima Godem, who was buried in Frankfurt under Oder, which is right on the, right, it's now actually right across, um, right across the German border in Poland, literally like at a highway truck stop. Uh, most of the most of the Besachayim was destroyed, but um, Kaver there is, was in the original Matzeva was not preserved, but they knew where it was. Um, that was you know, that early morning visit was you know was something it was really special. And then we drove to really somewhere with Spe- especially think, since the, the Prima Godin was was a, his, such a historic figure, and almost no one visits his cover. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then we went to to really Gutmacher in in Greiditz, which is probably another, I don't know, two hours away from there, closer to Posen, right outside Posen. And and we've written about Revelia Gutmacher, um, our friend Elias Abrat, if you go on uh, Old Daf, we can plug the Old Daf app here, has a uh, you know, nice talk on Revelia Gutmacher. But he was the original uh, schooler guy. He, uh, you know, he was, you know, people are running to, to Shaila, but I think Shaila probably would have ran to him, you know. Uh, and uh, even though he was Litfish and he would get... Uh, he would get all of, you know, he would get so much mail that he put an ad in the paper asking people to stop sending him mail. 
um, and his his kvitlach are preserved in in Yivo. Amazingly, they found it in an attic somewhere. Um, a whole geniza of them, and you know, you you could talk a little bit about you know some some of what's written on them. Really, is uh, a lot of what you see today on these kvitlach. Yeah, very interesting stuff. It's the only cachet of kvitlach that have ever been found, and. Rebleo Gutmacher is not even a Hasidish Rebbe, but everyone's sending him kvitlach. He's a, like you said, a, in Talmud of Rebbe Kivayager, a regular Polish Rav. And and these kvitlach are talking about um, asking for parnasa, asking for health, the regular standard questions, and then all kinds of quirky issues like uh, women talking about how their husbands are alcoholics, they keep on getting drunk, they they go they go to... The, they come back home from shul drunk. What should they do about it? It's it's affecting their shalom bias. Um, yeah, I think of... when you mentioned that, it made a couple of guys in the shul feel awkward. You know, like uh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> they had they, there's there's been research today of uh, Glenn Diner and uh, Marcin Wojcinski. They've really examined these kvitlach and gleaned so much information about you know, just regular day-to-day social life in Poland at the time, just by the requests that people are sending of Leo Guttmacher, but he was this, looked upon as this incredible uh, tzaddik and balmaifis and someone whose tefillahs and, and, and brachas can really help. And uh, and again, almost no one goes to his cover because no one goes to that part of Poland anymore. And we got to go and daven there and his, his matzeva was only recently discovered um, and marked off. Um, so we're probably one of the first groups to have ever gone, but we're going to try to promote it, and we are accepting suggestion, suggestions of different schoolers. No, we saw already. Yeah, we saw. We we already have seen oh, some yeah? issues. Yeah, yeah. Nvidia reported earnings okay, the great. same day, so, and 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 the earnings were blowout earnings, and you know, people who bought options made a lot of money, and you know, I think a couple of guys got job promotions already. But uh, it's a real, it's it's the real deal. I mean, that was the. Now, if you're looking for school, it's no look. Don't look any further than the places where the rebbes of the 19th century went. Right for for right. They the themselves they went to, to him. Went to so you right. know I I see that now that his cave is finally all the hard work was has been done to to find it and identify it. I think that, that this is this is going to be the next uh, hot spot. You know, Lezhensk and Uman and and. Uh, Obviously, Kerastir, and and there's some other you know up and coming ones, but I think Greitz Greitz is next. So uh, yeah, you know if you can buy, if you can afford, you know if you have fifteen or twenty dollars to buy real estate in Greitz, <laughs> I think put aside some of that money. Um, you know, some really nice uh, shacks that are available there. Um, and it's like his cave is right in the center of town. You know, they built the center of town around the cave, is what I would say. But um, I think the mayor came out to greet us early in the morning. They're having some kind of conference, right? 150 years yeah. uh, after his, his Petira. Um, and uh, they're very excited. We're the first group that showed up there only because two nerds like ourselves, right? You know, knew about it and thought, had, had this idea to go there. And of course, finally going into Posen, into the Kiva Eger's Caver, which is, which is really special. And actually, the reason I think people don't go there is because the school of Rebekah Eger is really don't go to my caver, stay home and learn, and uh, that's probably why people don't go there because the kind of people that have got Rebekah Eger's caver, they stay back in Spanish and they learn. But I think uh, right. you know us, you know, we're somewhere in the middle. We like to go to Quorum and we like to learn, so we we went halfway. So you know, we were. No, we could already... be like the Tsarachian of Rebekah Eger, you know. Exactly, but 
uh, it was really, really great. The way you spoke about uh, Rebecca Eger, really, on, on the way over there on the bus, it really kind of made it all come together. The Rav speaking about it, it was, uh, I'll try and post a couple of these videos at some point, but uh, it was really special. And, and Rebecca Eger, obviously, is buried right next to the amusement park with the Ferris wheel. I mean, that, that's what they've done now <laughs> to the cemetery there. They replaced it with uh, some apartment complexes and and uh, a large Ferris wheel. And I think they, uh, you know, there's all kinds of conspiracies that we have regarding that Ferris wheel, who used to go on it and, and uh, you know, right. what it did to them. Uh, I don't remember exactly, you know, what, what your main conspiracy was regarding that Ferris wheel. But Well, uh, well we found out from Gabriel Schuster, Rabbi Gabriel Schuster, our good friend who attended the trip, that Rabbi Kivager had 16 children, who I didn't know. I didn't know that before. He showed us the well, source. Well, yeah, right? obviously, you know, 16 so that, children. and So all the Aniklach really... probably were on the Ferris wheel. Right, right. And, you know, Jenny Miller, you know, she never made it back to her. Uh, Jenny Miller, the, the famous, you know, one of the most famous ans- uh, the descendants of Akiva Eger never made it back to her homeland. Um, you know, her, her mother was from, was, her family came from those parts. Her father as well, both came from, from the Posen area. Obviously, um, and we still haven't figured out which child of Akiva Eger she comes from. Obviously, everyone who's listening to this knows who Jenny Miller is right now, so we don't really have to go. Uh, we sure hope that. so, yeah. Yeah, we sure hope so, obviously. And uh, in case you're asking when the book is coming out, your guess is as good as mine. Obviously, it's you know very much uh, the project, you know, the research phase is taking longer than expected, but also because you know more uh, discoveries come about during this phase. So I think, uh, you know, it's coming. And uh, I think we can say also we're working on something else uh, that we're going to publish, hopefully, you know, within the next few months, I hope. Hopefully, um, yeah. There's going to be more hope. coming. More more coming. Um, but, uh, you know, the 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 going to Rekiva Eger's cave, you saw you saw everyone's faces. You saw, you saw you know, all, all of a sudden it became really, really serious. And people really understood we were standing in because, you know, everyone connected to that. Everyone connects yeah. to Rabbi Kivager through their yeshiva days and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the other moment which we discussed is really the first stop on our trip of Hershey's Caver, um, which also was, you know, uh, the Yekis and people tend to, to mock the whole, you know, the, the Yekis because the whole movement is, so to speak, dying out. But the Rav explained to us that it's, you know, that sure the community in Washington Heights is dying, maybe dying out. And I know Mike F. Flack was saying the, the whole movement is dying out, but but really it's not because we are all, or many of us are living, you know, in the shadows of Torah in Derek Haritz because of the way we live our lives in America. Many, yeah, hundred percent. You know, I think Hirsch's impact is only growing, um, even if it's subconsciously. Some people may not even be aware, and it's very interesting because. Um, a month ago or so, we had on this podcast um, a an episode about re- the legacy of Rav Hirsch that is related to what I guide in in Frankfurt by Rav Hirsch's cover and his community. And I got a very long and detailed email from someone who is apparently I don't know who he is, but he's apparently a very big expert in Rav Hirsch's writings. And he basically was complaining to me that um, that in the hashkafa of Rav Hirsch, it's not the exact ideology and hashkafa of as is explained in his writings, and he, he went on a whole thing, and I basically tried to get it through to him, and, and finally I said very respectfully, after a, a flurry of correspondence, I said, 
This is a history podcast, and we're talking about historical impact, especially social history podcast, which I try to make it. And it's not about hashkaf or ideology, and it's not about the text of uh, of, of uh, you know the exact literal reading of Hirsch's ideology. It's more about a wider social impact, and and that's undeniable. And even if no one is adhering to the letter of the law of of Rav Hirsch's collected writings or his exact parameters of what he said about Tarim Darachares, that's not the point. The point is, is that he was the ultimate um, visionary of how Jews confront the challenges of the modern era. How do we integrate a Torah life with modern with modern society? And and to to a large extent, we're very much living that way. And I think that's completely justified in saying so. And standing in front of his cover and speaking about him and his community, and his legacy, I think that uh, we all very much connected to that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, definitely, this is a trip that's highly suggested. It's it's a uh, let's say if you've already done the the Poland, you know, the, the regular Poland route, this is the this is the part two. Which you could do, and uh, definitely very much uh, suggested. Yeah, I hope we have more trips like that. So now we can um, move into today's topic, which is um, related to what this, you know, the many of the episodes that we're doing on uh, the Jews in the Russian Empire in the 19th century under the czars, and a major story of that is Jews serving in the Russian military in the czarist military. Um, throughout the 19th century, but the main uh, collective memory that Jews have from that entire century of serving in the Russian military is under the reign of Tsar Nikolai, or Tsar Nicholas I, um, who becomes the Tsar in 1825, and two years later, in 1827, he implements uh, the draft, he includes the Jews in the draft. Until then, Jews were able to get out of the draft by uh, paying 500 rubles, and they did not serve in the Russian military, and now he included Jews in in the draft. And um, uh, the uh, terrible reign, uh, I guess there's no other way to say it, of Tsar Nicholas I, um, as far as the Jews were concerned, it was terrible. Um, there's nothing, almost nothing positive that we remember from the reign of Tsar Nicholas I. Um, and it, was, it went through the Crimean War. He died in 1855. Um, and uh, uh, the reforms, the great reforms of Tsar Alexander II start in 1856 after the end of the Crimean War. So even though Jews serve in the Russian military until um, until the end of the Tsars, um, but the focus of the story is during those early years uh, under Tsar Nicholas, especially um, the way Jews were drafted into the military for the time period of 25 years, and especially certain types of draftees, which were called Cantonists, which were not all of them, were like that. Um, and the Cantonist uh, decrees are one of those real, you know, what in the top 10 tragedies of Jewish history that people like to talk about. People like to talk about it so much that there's a lot of legend and myth around the story. So maybe we'll dispel some of that myth oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. and legend. Um, it's not exactly as people, uh, you know, refer to it in our collective memory, but there's definitely lots to talk about in this uh, the, in this story of the Cantonists. Could, could, could we talking about legend and, and and myth? You got I've never actually. Uh, I'm not. A, I'm not a language guy, and I'm not a, a name guy. Is Nikolai something that's used outside of like the world of Shmuel Kunda and Jewish stories, or is it actually? It was that actually? You know, is that it? 
a linguistic thing, or is it Nick? I know Nicholas, I know, right? But you know, I know where that comes from. But Nikolai, is that I've never really heard it outside of like from circles. So <laughs> is that is that a real is that is that a nickname? Is that a different pronunciation? Is that Yiddish? Or do we know? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I know that in the Hebrew sources, the old Hebrew sources, I don't know about academic sources today, the old like Hebrew sources, uh, they use Nikolai, not Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Um I would think in one way that Nikolai is a plural of Nicholas, right? Like alumnus, alumni. Right, because there were two of them? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's a, a Slavic variation of it's a like Latin Pare, name. you're saying. I don't know. I have, I have uh-huh. no idea. Okay, I'm curious about that. I, I guess I could have Googled it, but, you know, it's, that's cheating. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of good material on this. If you want, you know, if you want, uh, if you want to understand it, um, Yochanan Petrovsky Stern, of course, uh, I had the opportunity to speak to him. He once. has excellent stuff on it. Um, He's probably the best. I think his book, Drafted into Modernity, is is, is a great start. And there's a, a, a Turo professor, Larry Dominich, uh, who wrote a book called The Jewish Children's Army of the Tsar. Um, and it's a yeah, it was a it's a quasi academic book, which is just you know really a great collection of material on that topic. Yeah, um, it is. And there's really the book that really set me off on, on really getting into this whole thing is is John Simon's book called Strangers in a Strange Land, which is really not a book about the Cantonists, but it starts with the Cantonists. It's the story of the only Jews that fought alongside the German army during World War II, which were the Jews of Finland were kind of forced, obviously. They were drafted into the army, an army that the Finnish army. allied itself with, uh, with with Germany. And the story of how Jews ended up in Finland is the story of the Cantonists and the story of how how uh, Tully Amsterdam ended up, right? Uh, the, the great Talmud of Israel Salander, how he ended up being the Rob in Helsinki, Finland. How, how did he end up in Helsinki, Finland? Uh, not exactly Irva Amy Israel. Um right. it goes there because it the the Cantonists when when they are uh, repatriated um are allowed are given rights to settle there. Um they're allowed and, to settle outside the, the pale of settlement when they're finished right. their military and service. Partic- and particularly the, it was it was there was like a colony um of of these Cantonists that lived there and Israel Salanter who was the you know, originator of the Kirov movement, I would say, one of the first, uh, you know, he, he sent him there to be Rav. And there were a few other subsequent uh, Rabbonim. So when when we look at the story of, of uh, the Cantonists specifically and in general, Russian Jews in the Tsarist military, so uh, I used, like you said, um, uh, Yochanan Petrovsky Stern's uh, um, material on this. He has done some great research and he does dispel a lot of the myths surrounding the Cantonists. Um, and it's interesting, uh, even historians at the time, like Shimon Dubnov, they they misunderstood a lot of the story of the Cantonists, but they they were closer to the time. And a lot of a lot of the times in history, what's important is not not the actual um, cold, hard, dry facts, but also the public's perception of the story. So if if Dubnov is reflecting what Jews in the Pale of Settlement understood about the story of the Cantonists at the end of the 19th century, which is already about half a century after the Cantonists is over, um, uh, then that reflects the general understanding of what Russian Jewry understood 
about the Cantonists, and even if even if not all of it is 100% accurate, but that is that is already an important story itself. So I wouldn't negate the you know the so-called legend or myths around the Cantonists out of hand because the fact that the collective memory of the Jewish people held on to this that's because it was seared into their memory um the tragic story of of the cantonists of these children taken into these cantonist brigades and then later on moving on to the the military itself by the way when i was um many years ago when i read zichron yakov the memoirs of yakov lifshitz the famous secretary of rabitzical khan inspector so in in um he he has um from some guy who helped um, Yaakov Lifshitz's son, who published it after his father had died, um, he published it in three volumes. Today, the copy that I have, it's all in one volume, but it was originally published in three volumes. Uh, and each volume, this there's this uh, gabai of a shul, in, he writes, in eastern Siberia, um, who contributes a a chapter of each, three times, three chapters about Cantonists and this Eastern Siberia Jewish community in the 1920s, which is already in the Soviet Union. He's he's he has this um, community of descendants of Cantonists, and he quotes directly from memoirs of Cantonists who who he knew. Um, as the gabai of this community, and I think it's called Ir- Irtutsk or Irkutsk or something like that. Um, and he, for some reason, it belongs in Zichron Yaakov. I don't know why. Um, and it's fascinating because here's a guy in the 1920s, a gabai of a Cantonist descendant community in eastern Siberia, quoting from memoirs of Cantonists, and it's published in Zichron Yaakov and Yaakov Lifshitz's memoirs. So it's amazing. Uh, some interesting stories there, actually, about how they were taken and their experiences. And, um, you know, Cantonist memoirs are really, really interesting as a firsthand uh, source. Um, uh, yeah, and there are, there are lots of them. But let, let's just first talk about numbers. You know, do do we have real numbers? No, but it's estimated, let's say, I don't know, 50,000, I think, was the number the best number that I found um, in, in, among sources for the amount of of children uh, that were that were taken, um, right? I I, I I don't know what that's based on, um, whether it's it's archival records or, or what, but uh, you know each of these children, the, the, the torture, you know that the families went through, um, and 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 the pain. It was just like uh, you know, it, it's. There, there obviously is the aspect of them losing their children and and all all of what the czar did, but I think that what really really made it so bad is really the you know what what we're called the choppers, right? Where how how eventually the czar the authorities realized that military realized that they weren't going to be able to accomplish this themselves, right? So they they basically put it on the communities and said, hey, you have to provide us with x amount of conscripts and what happened was is that then obviously there were the the kahila was very strong right there was uh every town you would pay a tax and there was a president uh, you know a democratically or pseudo democratically elected uh, head of the kahila and and you know the the heads of the kahila were often very guilty in this where they would take the the poor or the weak 
right? The, the Yisayimim, and they would send them, right? They would make sure the rich kids wouldn't, wouldn't go. They would, they, they would pay their way out of it, and instead, they would, they would, and there are these horrific stories of how they, they, they grabbed, you know, you have a, a woman who lost her husband, and she has one child, and they grabbed the child or you know, out of the hands of the mother, literally, and, and just you know, sent them off and never to be seen again. Um, the um, there are some of these, some of the, the some of the hypocrisy. You know, uh, the uh, the Hebrew uh, writer Yehuda Leib Levin, or is he Yehalel? Um, he yeah. writes he writes about the hypocrisy of the Kahal, and I'll, I'll just read it. Uh, the question depressed me to the point where I began to be afraid of Jews, of my Jewish brethren. One day, I saw the head of the community. I was told he was the head of the Kahal, and I was shocked. Did I not know him? Was he not steeped in Torah? Every Friday afternoon, as he got out of the mikvah with the water still dripping from his payas, he would pass through the market with a stick in his hand and shout, Women! Candlelighting! And if the women shopkeepers did not hurry to close their shops... Did he not oust them with a stick? And how honorable and pleasant it was to see a learned, eminent man staying up the whole of Thursday night in the yeshiva, studying until the morning. He is elegant in the manner he dresses, and he warns others against the desecration of Shabbos. Yet, he is the very head of the kahal. He is the governor and the commander. And at his command, infants are plucked from their mother's laps, fathers are taken from their children, and he would go in person to seek out people without papers, to abduct them and deliver to the army with his holy hands. I went crazy from what I saw. And there are those Rabbanim who fought the leaders of the Kahal. The Beis Alevi um, is, is said to have tried, you know, advocated for complete dismemberment of these uh, official Kahilos just for this reason alone. So the Russian government could not use the Kahal system to try and, and conscript young children. Uh, Yaakov Berlin, who was a father in Itziv, um, at one point there were a bunch of uh, children, uh, vulnerable children that were taken by the Kahal and locked in the town uh, prison, you know, awaiting uh, transport out to who knows where. And he got the townspeople by force to free the children against the will of the Kahal. But, you know, most of them weren't that strong, weren't able to... To fight and and some went along with it and uh, it's it's a it's an extreme. I spoke about this on Tishbev a couple of years ago, um, Shul, and it, it's just, this is one of the, one of the most difficult topics to to discuss. You know, yeah. Jew versus Jew, and and how really people took advantage of the weak and the and and the vulnerable. Um, and, yeah. and 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 you know, of course, you have the stories of those who survived it and came back. You know, there's, there's a few stories here and there, but you know, most didn't. Most never heard from again. Whether they died or whether they were lost to Jewish people completely. Right, many died. Um, um, Petrovsky Stern uh, says that at least a third converted to Christianity, possibly more. And then there's all those who didn't convert, but they assimilated. They were secularized and assimilated, so they disappeared also. So there weren't that many who uh, who remained afterwards. Um, in fact, it re- it remains such a strong memory of the Chappers and the Kahal against the vulnerable that Avram Levin, who was one of the main diarists of the Ringelum Archive in the Warsaw Ghetto, he writes there, and he didn't survive, no one in his family survived, but his diary did in the, in the archive. Um, he writes there that he compares 
the Jewish ghetto police in the Warsaw ghetto, it reminds him of the Chappers, of the Cantonists. He says, basically, it's the Judenrat, is the Kahal, the Jewish administrative council that the Nazis uh, have as their go-between between the Jews in the Warsaw ghetto and the Nazis themselves. They're, the, they're as if it were the Kahal. The Jewish ghetto police are the Chappers, and the Nazis are the Tsar and his government. And he says, and it's the same thing. Here it's uh, here in the Warsaw Ghetto, it's worse than the Hoppers because they're, you know, during the great deportation of the Warsaw Ghetto Jews, it's sending them to the Umschlag plots to be sent to the gas chambers at Treblinka. But ultimately, he saw the parallels. He he he, he almost he he writes very bitterly in, in the diary, and he says it's almost like it's a Jewish tradition that this is how um, this is how Jews treat other Jews, which is an awful. Um, thing to say and, and and to contend with, and we have to confront even the darker parts of our history. But I want to emphasize a couple of broader points so we can understand it. Um, initially, the Kahal response when the draft is implemented in 1827 is to assist the Jews who are drafted with kosher food and lobby the government, the Russian government, for the permission for the Jewish soldiers to observe religion, even to send them Sifrei Torah to use on on um, uh, military bases and for permission for them to use structures on the military bases to have them conduct a minion. So they 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 were they were helping them out. But by the 1830s, in other words, very few years after, from 1827 to the early 1830s, just a few years later, there's a shortage of draftees, and the Kahal changes its priorities. Um, and the most important point to understand here is that the Tsarist government never saw, not just Jews, any of its uh, subjects, you can't call them citizens, any of its subjects as individuals. Um, they only looked at the community at large uh, as a class, the serfs, uh, the aristocracy, the the church, uh, the, the um, you know, all these different other autonomous minorities, the Poles, the Catholics. So it's the Jews, and they don't see Yankel and Beryl and Shimon. They see it as the Jewish community. So the Jewish community as an entity, as an autonomous entity, is informed that they're being drafted, and they're going to be taking four Jews for every thousand people, four Jewish draftees for every thousand, which is equal to the rest of the population. So there was no like a specific Jewish discrimination at first. Uh, sometimes more later on, there was actually like double taken from Jews and stuff like that. That was later on, eighteen forties, fifties. But the point is, is that Ruvain never got a draft notice in the mail. The Kahal was informed that they have to supply this number of Jews. So, and the Kahal was going to be punished and 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 taken to account by the Tsarist police if they didn't supply this number. And the Tsarist Government couldn't care less who those people were as long as a number of draftees was supplied. Therefore, they saw themselves in between a rock and a hard place. I'm not justifying it. It's still it's still a tragedy. But that's the background. You have to understand that it wasn't an individual who received a notice from the state that they're drafted. It's that the Kahal was told that they have to supply the draft. And the way the Kahal worked is that they said, okay, the rabbi and his children, 
the Kahal members and their children, tax-paying citizens of the shtetl, of the, of the community, and their children are all exempt from the draft. So who are we going to draft? We're going we're gonna to take, first of all, younger recruits because we don't want people with families to leave behind their families because then they're going to be a financial liability for the Kahal. We don't want to have to pay for their families. So we're going to take younger people, and the younger the better. So that's where we get to the Cantonists in a minute. But they also take people who are unemployed. They take people who are non-taxpayers. They take the orphans, the poor. They take criminals. They say that's a good way to get rid of Jewish criminals. Someone who's caught as a thief in, in the in the kehila, in the in the shtetls. So they say, okay, let's bounce him off for the draft. Anyone who causes problems in the community. I don't know. He just recently instigated a machlekes in shul. So let's get rid of him. Let's send him off to be drafted. So it was a way to... Anyone who they wanted to get rid of, or anyone who was considered a lower member of society, so they sent them off. The Kahal members and the wealthy and the rabbi's children, anyone who was well-connected, were never drafted. People paid off the Kahal not to draft their kids. Now, this strengthened the Kahal, but it also increased a lot of resentment. And when the orphans and the poor tried to hide, that's when they needed to hire the Chappers. Now, Petrovsky Stern says that only happened during the Crimean War. He says that the whole period of the Chappers was only for about four or five years during the Crimean War. I don't know if all historians agree with that. I think most Yeah, say I think that, that is... uh, some of the some of them, I, you know, the Chappers, you know, the hired uh, hooligans, Kidnappers. right? Right. You know, these hooligans that would go into uh, grab these kids, you know, it wasn't that different. You know, if anything, it was, okay, we don't want our hands dirty, so we're not doing it ourselves. But, uh, you but, know, it was done. But, I mean, the point is, is that the Kahal hired... Jewish choppers, kidnappers, right. who were on the payroll of the Kahal. In other words, Kahal tax money, the community tax money, funded Jewish kidnappers to kidnap Jewish children for the Kahal to supply to... Yeah, contrast that. Yeah. Today we have Hasola, yeah. Shimerim, and Chaverim, and then they had choppers. And obviously the world <laughs> they lived in was quite different, but but it's, it's right. just... You know, it, it, but you know, there there are there are some there were some heroes here. Uh, the famous uh, Kalman Wasatsky, Wasatsky T, who was one of the uh, few Jews who had a license to live in Moscow, right, right during during that time. Um, his daughter also an early Talmud of Rishon Salanter. Rishon Salanter, obviously, and Rishon Salanter was also famously someone who fought against this whole thing. But um, there are several in, in Tenuas Amusar. There's, there's a, a couple of different episodes related. But in Tenuas Amusar, there's also this. This uh, he quotes this memoir of of this uh, daughter um, of, of uh, Wasatsky, who says that he would sneak into this uh, camp where where the where the Cantonists were held Pesach time and and try and uh, you know give them matzahs and teach them a little bit and even, you know, bribe them to allow them to con- allow them to conduct the Seder. Um, so he was one of the heroes. But, you know, also Petrovsky Stern, he talks about the ages. And, you know, not everybody was obviously taken as a young child, like the uh, books tend to uh, write, right. but, but many of them were. And it was, uh, you know, it, it was initially it was a 25-year sentence, essentially, to serve in the army. And, and 25 years is a long time to survive uh, intact. Right to come out as a Jew, it's yet alone, let alone survive a war as brutal as the Crimean War. Um, but the 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 totality of the Cantonist era right, began uh, 1826, 1827. 27. 
Right. So, you know, lasted for what, a half a century? Um, Less. By 1856, yeah. it was over. By the end of the Crimean right, War and right. Tsar Nicholas's death. So it lasted 30 years. It ended, but it ended in waves. So meaning not all of them were somebody who had been conscripted. It stayed. wasn't necessarily right state. So yeah. it essentially lasted about a half a century. If, you, if you're talking about it in, in those terms, but um, you know, th- there's, there's, you know, there's, there was so much pain associated with it that, that there's almost no, you know, there's almost nothing that was written from that time. You know, no memoir that, that written by a simple person or somebody involved that does not mention, you know, the stories, the fear that anybody uh, lived with. Um, the, the the famed Blumka's Kloys in, in Minsk, where later you right. have uh, Ravon Cutler and Yakov Kamenetsky are studying. And and there's, the, there's a, a book there. There's a book uh, from someone who studied there, I forgot his name, but he ended up in San Antonio, Texas. Um, could try and link it in the, in the show notes. And he writes in there and learning in shul, learning in the shul there. And they figured that the, it's an easy place to have people is uh, they would sleep like in the Ezra's mushroom. They, they just went in there and they grabbed a whole bunch of them. And like the literally the, the, the war that occurred between them and these hoppers. Um, right. That's Kukotik, right? The the Enikler of Chaim Chaim Velozhner, the Chizishen of Chaim Velozhner, in his book, uh, which is translated by uh, David Asaf in, into English, um, it, it has a lot about it. Um, you know, the, the, the great memoirs that era, Pauline uh, Wengerov, which is a must-read memoirs of the grandmother. That one also uh, uh, talks about it, but. Um, I, I think that that it's it's hard for us to imagine, you know, Jew versus Jew, um, you know, in, in in such a way, and 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 how painful and and, and you know how how there's divided Jewish people more than um, at the time. You know, there's there's one story which is I don't know if it's legend, I don't know if it's a true story or not, which talks about um, talks about a shul where they were dancing hakafas. Uh, um, on Simchas Torah, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, a muscular uh, man, you know, like in, in a military uniform, you know, an older man, you know, a middle-aged man, walks in, um, and he starts dancing with all kinds of fervor, and they realize that he's a Jew, and they get excited, they're dancing with him, and uh, they hand him a Sefer Torah for that kaffa, and all of a sudden, he rips his shirt off, and everyone gets really, really uncomfortable. You know, he's, he's wearing his talus and he's wearing no shirt and he's holding the Sefer Torah. And they run over the rub and they say, you got to do something. You have to do something. And then they look closer and they see this man is covered in scars, his entire body. And and the rub calls him aside and says, you know, who are you? What, you know, what's your story? And he explains and he says, I want you to know that many years ago as a young boy, I was taken away from my parents. I remember till this day, my mother's screaming, always remember that you're a Yid. Always remember that you're a Jew. And he said, I remembered I was a Jew, but I wasn't able to keep the Torah. I wasn't able to do any mitzvahs. I didn't keep a single Shabbos. I never once was able to put on tefillin. He says, but look at the scars on my back. I want to say for Torah to see. He says, these are the evidence of the beatings I had to endure. They tried to force me to eat, pray for meat, and I didn't give in. He says, they whipped me, they tortured me, but I refused to eat anything that wasn't kosher. That's why I'm holding the Torah against my body, because I want to show, you know, I want to show Hashem, I want to show everybody, because this is what I did for the Torah. Amazing. 
Amazing. They, they, uh, on that note, I want to also make a distinction between some things that we, we tend to mix together is the Jews drafted into the military and the Cantonists. Um, Cantonists later served in the military, but they're really two different things. There was the general draft, and many Jews were drafted straight into the military and served for 25 years. Um, that 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 took place under Tsar Nicholas I. That was not very different than than the rest of the subjects of Nicholas in the Russian Empire. Um, that they were drafted into the Russian military for 25 years. Um, that's not the Cantonists. The Cantonists were something that was. Um, there were these Cantonist brigades of younger children, and that was the the more tragic story. They were taken at a very young age. They were kind of like these paramilitary camps where they were trained in getting ready for the military indoctrinated um, i think is the word yeah indoctrinated and 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 uh they were taken as young as eight and ten years old um and they were um they they uh they were this was also not only jews but but uh you know we're talking about the jewish story here and then when they were finally ready for the military years later that's when they started their 25 year time so there are many more years and um and that was that was the the cantonists were like a separate story so there's really two types of people here and most uh, uh of jews who served in the russian military were you know they were they were there for 25 years and they were taken as adults um um and it, you know it was hard to stay jewish and they probably suffered from anti-semitism as well that's a different story. The Cantonists are the ones taken as children to these paramilitary camps, brigades, whatever they're whatever they're called, and um, and very often um, here's here's one of the other questions: is was the goal of taking these children that young to have them convert to Christianity or not? And it was very often understood that that was the purpose of them taken to the Cantonists as Cantonists was to forcibly convert them to Christianity or to get them all to convert to Christianity. Um, that's been disproven. Uh, they, Nick, Nick, Tsar Nicholas himself definitely wanted that. In fact, he he is a deeply religious person and the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. He encouraged it. He, he, he even visited a Cantonist camp sometimes to try to see how the missionizing is going and try to see how the conversion to Christianity process is going. It's one of the few things that he was directly involved in. Amazingly enough, he, 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 he loved it. He was very involved in it, but at the, at, at the same time, it was a very um, time consuming and economically not feasible task of converting the Jews to Christianity by getting these Cantonists to convert. In other words, you're dealing with very small numbers and, and getting through the bureaucratic process of converting them and convincing them and forcing them, it was a very ineffective means. None of the officers in these camps really tried to do it that hard. Um, despite that, like we said before, um, uh, at least a third did convert to the Russian Orthodox Church of the Cantonists, um, possibly even more. Um, many in the Russian military itself, not just in the Cantonists, uh, many others assimilated, secularized. Uh, some of them did retain their Jewish identity. Um, but um, what it was seen as, the military was seen as as a means of integration, Russification. 
That was the initial goal of Tsar Nicholas drafting them in the first place. I have to take a, another step back, really, was that Jews throughout European history in, in the Middle Ages were never drafted into any militaries. Um, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, with the French Revolution and the beginnings of emancipation, the winds of change of the modern era, so countries like Austria, Prussia, France, Italy, other countries, they they started drafting Jews into the military as a mechanism of emancipation and integration into society. Tsar Nicholas saw things differently. He also wanted the military draft, but the goal wasn't emancipation. In other words, the European, other European countries like Austria, for instance, or France, they they saw the military draft as part of this package of Jews are now going to become part of society. We're emancipating the Jews, so they have obligations to the state, and they get um, equal rights. They're getting all their all these rights that the state is required to give them because now we're treating them equally. Um, so privileges, obligations, and privileges. And therefore, the military draft is seen as part of this package, and it's seen sometimes as the ultimate expression of integration. Like here, all citizens are serving their country and being part of the story of defending the, the fatherland uh, or the homeland, whereas Tsar Nicholas sees the military draft as, my subjects have to serve in my military, and the goal is not emancipation. The goal is drafting them into the military to transform them from the Jews are a problematic population, and I need to transform them into a productive and useful population. And therefore, I, uh, uh, the military is a good mechanism for that. So the whole view of, 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 of the draft is very different in Russia. But at the same time, it's kind of serving the same goal as far as the Russian government is concerned. It's to try to integrate the Jews into Russian society. Um, and they can no longer be outside. They can no longer pay the 500 rubles to stay out of the draft. They're now part of it. They now have to part of it. And when the initial draft is announced, so it's seen as a tragedy. And the Russian Jews saw it as a tragedy. There's We have all kinds of records of, of, of uh, communities calling a day of fasting and a day of prayer uh, to annul the evil decree and all kinds of Hasidic tzaddikim, uh, you know, trying to, you know, Daven and 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 make like all kinds of uh, you know let's 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 improve ourselves let's do tshuva to get a, get rid of this evil decree of the of the draft and of course all the time tested traditions of bribing officials to not implement the draft and and all that and none of it worked the draft was implemented by force. From the first time I started reading about this, I still have nightmares from some of the some of the stories that I read about about this era. Um, in in Larry Dominic's book, he he brings on uh, he brings out this with a story. Uh, I I don't I, I don't have the source here for it, but he, he you know it's, it's a paragraph. I'll read it. There's an elderly blind man lived with his ten year old son. In his younger man in his younger years, the old man had been the cantor and emissary of the town, until he had contracted an eye disease and can no longer perform the functions of his job. He begged for bread to feed his family, with his young son guiding him from town to town. As they walked through the forest one winter day, Coppers abducted his son. Alone and lost in the forest, the blind cantor screamed for help until he lost his voice. But nobody heard the old man's cries. The next day, 
the cantor was found dead, frozen to death in the forest. And you think about the Rishas, right? The absolute horrible things that these people did. And and, and there were those who fought back. Um, uh, obviously, there were like, uh, you know, the, the in some of these communities, the not necessarily the hard hoppers, but the people in town that, that were massacred, right? And gave people away, they, they made them disappear, so to speak. I don't know. The episode <laughs> with the uh, with the Rishner was not. I don't know if it was related to the Hoppers, right, or, or the Cantonists. No, but, that's, uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't remember. I don't think so. Yeah. No, but but you know the whole story of him allegedly, right? You know them, them mm-hmm. uh, drowning a couple of people in town that were giving away people to the to the authorities. But uh, just to think about you know in today's day and age how things like this actually happen and, and have largely been forgotten. You know we. we yeah, all of our kids, you know, they know about the Cantonists, but they don't know about the Hoppers, and it's an easy thing to forget. But uh, I think it's an important thing not to forget to remember how low humanity can go, even the Jewish people, and how important it is, you know, for us to to, to care about our brethren, especially right, the Yisimim and those who are those who are the most vulnerable, yeah, the most vulnerable people, and, and and this is exactly the opposite. Right, the, the scars remain, and and very often we have a recurring theme in in Russian Jewish history under the czars is that you couldn't vent your anger out on the czars. He was too powerful and too strong of an enemy. And what what we often did was instead vent it out on the closer uh, um, one, which was the, the, the locals, the Jews, uh, and, and, uh, and unfortunately, the scars remain. What's I, I would like to just get towards the end of the story by by showing how um, the military draft in Russia kind of stays with us today, till today, in many ways. Because if we move beyond the Cantonists and beyond Tsar Nicholas, and to the great reforms of Tsar Alexander II, starting in 1856, one of his reforms is the military draft. He stops the Cantonists. He stops the 25-year sentence, and now it's a regular draft. I think you're for eight years or something, or 12 years. I forgot what it was. It was relatively shorter. And it's equal, Jews and non-Jews. And now Jews are, there's this struggle in, as Jews in Russia are confronting modernity, there, 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 there are many Jews who say, oh, this is our ticket to Russian society. We'll proudly serve the czar. The czar, this czar is much better for us. Like you said, it goes back and forth, right? And and now we'll, we'll this is a means of integration. Uh, if I'm a veteran of the military, I'm allowed to live outside of the pale. I don't have to live, be stuck inside of the pale of settlement. And I'm serving the 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 military. And anti-Semites in Russia are, are accusing the Jews of being draft dodgers. And the Jews are saying, no, 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 we're loyal. We're patriotic. We do serve in the military. And even... The Chavetz Chaim, who's the leader of traditional Jewry, he's he's out there for the soldiers. He writes a revolutionary sefer, Machane Yisrael, which is to serve the needs of the Russian Jewish soldier. So he doesn't abandon them. He's there for them, and he shows them how to live as a Jew and preserve their Jewish identity, despite their being uh, in the in the Russian uh, Jewish uh, uh, the Russian Tsarist army, and. Um, and the the Russian military becomes the um, a as the century wears on, and as things get worse for Russian Jews towards the end of the nineteenth century, 
the military is one of those places where the reactionary era of post-1881, it becomes worse and worse. In fact, there's almost a reversal of tactic. There's a movement within the military itself and the Russian government in the late 1800s, early 1900s, to remove Jews from the military because they're disloyal. So it almost like this this whole idea of integration through the military is almost reversed. Um, but the 90 years of czarist military uh, played a significant role in Russian Jewish consciousness, and it leads what I think would be to several post-Tsarist phenomena, and that's the best way to summarize this. I would mention three things that I could think of. Number one, in the Soviet Union, the early years of the Soviet Union, the 1920s and 30s and 40s, the Red Army is dominated by Jews in senior officer positions. It's almost like Jews were like waiting to serve in the army, right? And waiting to be in a non-Tsarist, non-anti-Semitic military. And as soon as they're given the opportunity, they fly to the top. And it's a fascinating thing that Soviet Jews are running to the Red Army. They're becoming senior officers in the Air Force and the Navy everywhere in the early years of the Soviet Union, even during World War II, because it's this whole years, all these years of being suppressed inside the Tsarist military. That's number one. Number two is uh, Jewish um, paramilitary defense groups in Poland in the interwar period. And in Palestine, the Haganah, and later on in the state of Israel, is dominated by Russian Jews. The officer corps of the Palmach and the Haganah and the early years of Tzahal, of the IDF, is dominated by Russian Jews because it's, you know, we're going to do what the Tsar didn't let us do. We're going to become officers. We're going to have a military. We're going to fight. And that is this, this, this reaction to looking at the military um, as a means of getting out and the czar suppressing it because he wants to use, uh, um, uh, you know, using it to, 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 to suppress them. And number three, and this is the final point, is the military as a mechanism of integration and belonging and responsibility of, of, of sharing responsibility, that this is not just privileges in a society, but you have responsibilities in, a, in society. And if you want to reap the benefits of society, you have to serve in the military, which was the whole idea of Tsarist Russia. You get out of the pale and you get the privileges of society if you, if you, uh, if you join the military. That is still currently the belief and a point of contention in the modern state of Israel. The prism to see the secular religious divide over the Israeli military draft in 2024 is the czarist Russian military draft in the 19th century. That's my personal opinion, because it's... it's, it's yeah, and also also the, the when I would say the early years of the state when the, the battles uh, over religion were basically fought by the military, whether it was the drafting of girls and, and you know, right. Shei Lumi and all that. That literally was, that was the dividing line, I think. And that was um, a definitely holdover in the early years time. of the state. Um, you know, it, 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 it's it's a hot button topic again. It, it, it crops up from time to time um, as, as as a major one. Sometimes it's, it's it's you know, during times of peace, it's, it's less contentious. But, uh, you know, Thankfully, this is not a political podcast. You know, this is a yeah, podcast. Yeah, just headlines, yeah. and and here <laughs> here here are like nineteen episodes on this, and here everyone's opinion. I think maybe even yours. Um, yeah. But uh, definitely, definitely true that this all 
you know, it, it runs along the same lines. Um, and the uh, Havdil Evdil Avdalas, obviously, and, and nothing should, n- nobody should ever be compared, you know, to, to, to the to the czarist uh, regimes. Um, and, right, obviously, obviously, I'm, and, I'm not, I'm not comparing. I'm just saying the historical you know, precedent for it. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's it's really. A, it's among the most painful topics, and, and we could we could do a few hours. Probably had I prepared, and probably could could have got a lot uh, longer here. Um, but um, and if you can go all day on this, and then one time we will do a, another part of this and go through a little bit more. But uh, fascinating, and uh, thanks again for an amazing trip. Thanks for having me on once again. Thank you, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the trip. This was a great discussion. And uh, we should do it again. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History of, Soundbites. Uh, let's figure out what we're doing. for. We're writing for Pesach, actually, because we're getting pretty close. So that too. That yeah. too. <laughs> so again, um, you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. And 